Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for leading us. I think it's the first time leading us in song after your operation. Is that right? So we must give thanks to God. Right? And that's why if Pastor Jeff missed a few things, ah, yeah, never mind. Lah. That's the sequence of things, right? And so it's a wonderful thing that God has preserved His life for our ministry, for our service, for God's glory. I do not know how you have arrived here, but for Pastor Jeff, he must arrive here with thanksgiving and me just to see him up here in action, serving the Lord, doing something he really loves, using his gift of music. I don't know how you have arrived here, but thankfully, most of you have arrived dry before it starts to pour and rain out there. And because it's going to start raining, it looks like a torrential downpour, there is no need to hurry in our service. The sermon can just carry on. Where are you going? <laughs> I don't know how you have arrived. I do not know how you have experienced the importance of identity, especially during this pandemic. But out there and here, as you sit down here, I'm the only one without a mask now, identifying people with masks is it's quite, a, quite a challenge, right? And I'm usually quite good. I've gotten, after a while, I, I can sort of recognize you and your eyes. But this one was really trying. I heard a voice while uh, at Great World City, uh, Pastor Chris. So I turned around, there was a guy, and he had a cap on and had a mask. <laughs> he didn't introduce himself, and I was trying my level best. Can I guess at who this is? Can I guess at who this is? I couldn't. <laughs> Just his eyes with a cap right here. So, and finally, he, said, he spoke a little bit more than I got his name right, right? And by God's grace. Have you ever experienced uh, this at a, maybe at you know, a traffic light, and somebody on the opposite side waving to you, and you wave back, and you're trying, and you say, I don't quite know this person. Actually, they're waving to someone behind. <laughs> As you get closer and closer. And so sometimes mistaken identity is a little bit lighthearted. And other times mistaken identity is a little bit more serious. A little bit more serious. This couple that um, we heard about in, in, in Malaysia, their life has never been the same again. Why? Because they sent their son overseas to study in Melbourne. And uh, one day, somebody just knocked on the door, just bashed through the door. They, they broke in and they shot him dead. The police investigation proved that it was a mistaken identity. They thought he was part of a drug ring and the drug fellows were after him. To this day, to the time I met the couple, right? Um, Everything in their house remains exactly the same. His room remains the same. His slippers at the foot of the bed remains the same. Everything he kept. And there's something in them that just hopes that that mistaken identity was a mistake. And somehow he would be alive. And somehow he would come back. Identity, mistaken or right identity, matters in life. When we get to Mark chapter 8, we are at a turning point, a fulcrum, a watershed in the life of the Lord Jesus. And so the importance of identity, the first slide comes on, is to keep asking, who is this man? And he wanted the disciples to get it right. But beyond a certain point, they should have concluded, more rightly, as the inner circle, as the insiders, not the outsiders, from Mark chapter 4 onwards, when Jesus started to teach them in parables. Who is this man? And in Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 91, 
we have this. And Jesus went on with disciples to the villages, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? I'm no longer interested in the popular views out there, but who do you say I am? This is a one-to-one -one relationship. When was the last time you, you asked each other this question? Who, I know there are many views of me, many sides of me, but who do you say I am? Is what the Lord Jesus asked of them. And Peter answered on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone, not to tell no one about him. And so a few things to note, Caesarea Philippi, is about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. 40 kilometers is about the length of Singapore, right, from east to west. Uh, how long might it take in terms of walking a distance? But why Caesarea Philippi for this watershed event of the first prediction of Jesus, what we call passion or suffering? And here are some possibilities. Caesarea Philippi in its history it, had, it was the centre of the worship of Baal, Baal, however you pronounce it. And then it became the centre of worship of the Greek god Pan, P-A-N, or Pan. And then it became, by the time Jesus came around, it became the centre of worship of the emperor, a place of emperor worship. And maybe there is some significance, as some scholars say, that a place that is known to be a centre of idolatry, the centre of the worship of Baal, the centre of the worship of the Greek god Pan, the centre of the worship of Caesar, the, the worship of everything and anyone else besides the true and living God, should be the place where Jesus' true identity is revealed. Could there be something there? Not sure. But here is the thing. At this point in Jesus' life, who the disciples think that he is. And some say he's perhaps John the Baptist, the popular word out there, we did a survey, right? We did a survey, he could be John the Baptist reincarnated, John the Baptist resuscitated, John the Baptist resurrected. Others say Elijah, why? Because the Jews believe that in the end time, uh, someone like the prophet Elijah, or prophet Elijah himself, would be resurrected for the end time rule of God. Oh, surely you cannot deny that Jesus, if he was not specifically either John the Baptist resuscitated or Elijah has come to announce the end time, then he's surely one of the prophets. And then he asks, and Peter answers on behalf of the disciples, you are the Christ. The Christ, the term means the chosen King of God the anointed King of God. You first met this term if you read the, the, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. But now from this point onwards, it starts to come to the fore more and more. But to really understand what's happening here about the identity of Jesus, the story so far, the history so far, the factuality and record of Jesus so far, two sides to him, increasingly popular with the crowds, and the crowds were building up. The crowds were building up. Maybe they began with the tens and now in the hundreds with the thousands following him. Surely they were. From the feeding of the thousands that we just read, if you follow the account. 
Yet at the same time, there was increasing animosity, hostility, hatred to him from those who were jealous about him and threatened by him, beginning with the religious, local religious establishment and then slowly from Jerusalem itself. And so by chapter 7, the, the chapter immediately before this, important for us to understand, it then centered around ritual cleansing. It began with the local leaders plotting to kill Jesus over what? He's a Sabbath breaker. He's a Sabbath breaker. He keeps healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus kept showing what was God's original purpose about the Sabbath. Is it the day to do nothing or day to do the most important thing? Love God. How? By loving your neighbour. You can sing till you, you turn green or say to you, declare till you turn white. I love God, but unless you love neighbour, there is no proof. And so it was not a day to do nothing. If you can heal on this day, you heal. If you can save life, you save life. There was Jesus' corrective of them. It's not a day to do nothing. It's a day to do the most important thing. Press your reset button in love for God. Express in love for neighbour. In 322, the Jerusalem leaders call him Beelzebub, essentially calling him Satan. Instead of seeing God at work in him, they are daring to conclude they see Satan at work in him and through him. You couldn't get more spiritually obtuse than that, more spiritually blind and hardened than that. In 7.1 to 20, the Jerusalem leaders now uh, accuse Jesus and disciples of uncleanness, which is a very huge thing, defilement. By now, the tradition was they wash everything, and Jesus says all this external washing, which is not there from God's word in Leviticus, right? There were laws about food. There were no laws about all this washing. It's a tradition of elders, the tradition of men. All that washing doesn't cleanse the source of all evil. For out of a man's heart comes all kinds of evil. So last week I saw preaching at ARPC at Bishan. Right? I asked them a question. What are the chances of this happening to you? I said this at our church camp many years ago as we preached to Mark's Gospel. And so I listened to a BBC program. What are the chances that you could be a victim of a terrorist attack? At that time when this program was being recorded, a BBC uh, documentary, the chances of you being the victim of a terrorist attack is one in four million. The chances of you, right? Um, the chances of you being the victim of a car accident, dying in a car accident, is one in a hundred thousand. The chances of you dying of a heart attack in America is one in eight thousand. So you ask yourself, if the chances of this are higher, we should put more money here. Is that right? If more people are going to die of a heart attack, we put more money here. But they were debating, how come we're putting so much money in anti-terrorism? Because the bigger the problem, the more life-threatening the problem, the better solution the better the solution has to be. And Jesus says, you want to know what the odds are? What are the odds that, what are the chances that war might break out in our region? I thought I'd better ask it on behalf of all of us. Don't know. Really don't know. Right? Is some fellow mad enough to do this in our neighbourhood? We don't know. I just listened to a very good uh, diagnosis of this and you should read and understand it from Kishori Mahubani, our own Singaporean thinker right, about this. 
the bigger the problem, the better solution has to be. And Jesus says, out of a man's heart, a woman's heart, comes all kinds of evil. You know, it's Jesus' way of saying, there's a 100% chance, a one-to-one chance, that we, you and I are sinners. If that's absolutely true, right, who can save you when you have... So last week at the new member service at Bishan, one of the new members came up and she couldn't quite speak because she was choking up the fact that she was there to be baptised into the faith, there to be transferred with the family. It, the fact that she was alive, she had five stents put in. Five stents put in to save her life. If your life is at risk, and the risk to you and me is one to one chance that you are 100% sinner in the eyes of the true and the living and the loving God, then you need to ask, who then can save you not from a terrorist attack, not from a car accident, not from a heart attack, but who then can save you from Satan and sin? That's at the heart of Jesus' mission. That's why he came. And so very important that we get this. That's the total backdrop, complete backdrop, in chapter 7 before we arrive in chapter 8. And we began to teach them that the Son of Man, the Greek word is D-E-I, they must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days must rise again. And Jesus said this plainly, that means, to the inner circle, the insiders, disciples, he taught this as clearly as he could, as crystal clear. You want to know who I truly am? This is who I truly am. I am indeed the suffering Christ. And so the suffer has four dimensions to it. In Singlish, right, Jesus is saying, die, die, he must die. For those tuning in, that's Singlish. Die, die, he must die. He must suffer many things. His suffering will not be one-dimensional. I do not know how many shades of suffering have you experienced. You come back, do you suffer domestic violence? You go out to the workplace, do you suffer abuse at the workplace? You get on social media and you're being hounded by somebody on social media. You're bad-mouthed or cancelled on social media. If that's you, you probably need help. Nothing in your life is going right. I look at the Lord Jesus up to this point in Mark's Gospel and I ask the question as I read and prepare and preach, how much rejection can a man take? How much misunderstanding can a person take? How much, right? Just how much accusations can he cope with? And the Lord Jesus took it all in. He took it all in. He absorbed it all the way to the cross. How much accusation? How much misunderstanding? How much? He must suffer many things. And so his family thought he was out of his mind. The leaders wanted to kill him. He must be rejected by the Sanhedrin. The three parties mentioned there, they make up the highest and most powerful religious body in Israel. And in Israel, the most important thing is not politics. The most important thing was not the economy. The most important thing was religion. You do anything against the religion of that time, you'll be in trouble. And so the elders, the chief priests, right, and the scribes. The, the chief priest is the first mention of them, and from this point onwards, they'll be mentioned a lot more. 
that they're going to be part of this conspiracy and totally guilty of killing off Jesus. Chief priests totally guilty of killing off. The priesthood totally guilty. It's as if you walk into church somewhere and say, hey, there's a conspiracy to kill off Pastor Chris, no? By who? Among the leaders, ah. Huh? You magnify them by a billion times. You're beginning to get this. This is how serious it is. The whole religious establishment, and he must be killed. And on the third day, he must rise again. This is Jesus' first prediction of the suffering Christ. This is his destiny. But a few things need to be qualified. As Jesus says this, he's not, he's not saying, I'm going to be stumbling and saying the wrong things and randomly I'm going to be rejected. Randomly I'm going to be accused. And randomly, and this is not fatalistic, I have no choice but to be killed. He's actually saying, because he predicts this three times, when it does happen, it is not random or chance or human misadventure or foolishness or delusion on his part. When he finally goes to the cross, is the fulfillment. It must happen. It's a divine imperative. And what does that mean for you and me? If Jesus' whole life is it must happen this way, when you believe in him, everything falls under the umbrella of divine sovereignty. When you believe in Jesus as your Saviour and your Lord, as your Good Shepherd and your Great Healer, when you believe in Jesus as Alpha and Omega, the first and the last of human history and your story, nothing is happening in your life that is random. Nothing is happening in your life that is fatalistic, in which you feel that you are just a pawn in people's games, either in families or in politics in the workplace, Oh, you feel Ukraine now. Please help us. Please create a no-fly zone because we're going to be bombed out of oblivion. Did you notice? Did you hear the parliamentary report about this from a foreign minister? Do you know anything about the history of Ukraine? I read quite a, a lot about it until I heard that speech and it, it gave me a new thing. The third most powerful nuclear power, right, First, America, second, Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, now mainly Russia, but Soviet Union, and the third that had the most nuclear weapons was Ukraine. And when the Soviet Union collapsed, both three countries, the US, UK, and Russia, forced, as it were, Ukraine to give up her nuclear weapons with the promise if she was ever in trouble, the three of them will come and rescue her. You could sit there as Ukrainian wondering, is this all random? Are we just a pawn? That's what Vivian Balakrishnan reminded us of. They traded, but nobody quotes that. Nobody quotes that when 40 million people's lives are at stake. Who's going to come to this? You think about the Lord Jesus. And he's not saying that this is random, fatalistic. It is fulfillment. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing disciples, he rebuked Peter. What do you call this between the master and the, the teacher and the student? Mutual rebuking. Right? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. So what is the meaning of this? But, and so firstly, he's not saying that Peter is possessed by Satan. He's not saying this at all. And Peter is acting like Satan. He's most likely saying that he's acting like Satan in one sense, not willing to accept him and his revelation that he is the suffering Christ. So it's not the inability to understand Jesus as the suffering Christ, it's the unwillingness to accept him as the suffering Christ. For who wants a weak deliverer? Because we've got a very strong occupier called the Roman Empire. And we Israelites, we Jews, need a very strong deliverer against this very strong conqueror and occupier. So it's not his inability to listen to Jesus as weak Messiah, suffering Messiah, is his unwillingness. We are looking for a powerful political and military deliverer. Firstly, deliver us militarily. Then protect us politically. That's what we want. And Jesus just said four things about himself. He is not going to be this. And so it's not that Peter was possessed by the devil. And so when Jesus says, get behind me, and so at this point is Peter leading Jesus and Jesus says to Peter, fall in line. Please know who I am. Please know who I am. And so the mind of men, the word there, the Greek is anthropos, from which we get anthropology. The mind of man is actually influenced by Satan. And so Satan's influence in the world is a very simple thing for you to pick up, first century, 21st century, is to keep missing the true identity of Jesus. Satan's work through the values and the worldviews of this world is to keep you trivializing the person and work of Jesus. And if you could trivialize the, work, the person and work of Jesus, you would never need him for your life. And so Jesus just becomes a person to discuss, not a person to believe in. And Christianity just gets, gets something for you to do your, give your opinions about. Jesus here is not asking for opinions. He's asking for obedience. It's not your inability to understand this. It is an unwillingness to accept me for who I am. This is how I will save you. And then immediately we have this pattern. What is the pattern? Let's read this first. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. And he goes on, very famous words that you and me must understand. I'll read. Can you read responsively with me? I'll start first. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? World and soul. Your turn. 
For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There are a few things to note here, and there are a few firsts that you and me must understand. And there's few firsts about Jesus and his words about his identity would change your life and my life. So this, this is the first suffering or passion prediction. And Jesus will repeat, and Jesus will say this again, as recorded for us in 931 and 1033 and 10:34. This is also the first mention of the cross, the Greek word staros, right? And in, from this point onwards, the cross will be mentioned more and more. By the time you get to chapter 15 that records the end of Jesus' life, the cross is front and centre, left and right. The cross is front and centre, left and right. And what does this mean? Because it's so fresh in our minds, right? The war in Ukraine is front and centre, left and right. Nothing possesses them than surviving this war. And so, it's the first of many things. If you mention punishment to Jewish folk, at that time, they were used to punishment death by stoning. If you mention death in Roman circles, they had a great many things to punish people, throwing their enemies to the bees, burning them, etc. But for those who committed treason, right, terrorism against the Roman Empire, the cross was so cruel that Romans would not mention it in their midst. And so first mention of the cross, and this is to a Jewish audience, it would have been totally foreign and shocking to them that following this rabbi who was so popular has anything to do with, it's not something in terms of word association, that following Jesus would have to do with the cross, a most untalked about thing because of its cruelty. And so at the heart of it, it will always be followed by teaching on discipleship. So prediction, discipleship. Prediction, cause of discipleship. All three have that same pattern. So now you will not follow me out of popularity. You will now follow me as my disciples out of fidelity. To follow somebody, to keep in relationship out of popularity and to keep in that relationship out of fidelity are two different things. Sometimes we, we do a lot of weddings here and most times the motivation for getting married is right. But sometimes the motivation for getting married is not so right. And so I remember asking a few times of ladies in our midst, why do you want to get married? And the answer is the bio clock is ticking away and my mother thinks this guy is good and I also agree with my mother. Something along those lines, uh, some sort of mutation. So you're making a decision that is not based on fidelity. You're going to make the decision out of peer pressure. You're going to make the decision because your bio clock is racing away. And you're going to make the decision 
or you're younger, you've got so many and say, oh, yo, which one should I choose? There are two. You know, very early on in my pastoral life, I was called up late at night and this lady was just crying. So I said to Mona, I have to go. She might take her life. I said, yeah, 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 please go. And now I learned the lesson, must not go out late at night and meet somebody, a, a lady. Uh, we were in a public place along Orchard Road, etc. And what was the problem? I said, there are two guys who want to marry me. I thought, that's not a problem. Right? I, of course, I didn't say it. I said, yeah, oh, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Two guys want to marry me. Where am I with this? The cost of discipleship. What reasons? And Jesus doesn't want you to follow him out of popularity, but fidelity. Choose him for the right reason. That's why prediction, teaching on discipleship. And basically what he says is this. If you save yourself and yourself is self-centered, self-rule, self-determination, self-pleasing, self-ambition, and self-arrival. Begins with self, I determine that X, Y, Z will make my life complete. I determine that X, Y, Z will make me truly happy. I determine that this is what will actualize my life and I will arrive. So it's our ambition for our wrongful rule of ourselves. When we lose self, the centre of my life now becomes God through Jesus Christ. It's God's rule. And our surrender to God is our surrender to Jesus, His Son, who came for us, to Christ's rightful rule over my life and your life. And with Jesus ruling my life, I'm complete. I can give up control of my life. So I've quoted this many times. Why are we so afraid to hand our life to someone wiser than us, greater than us, more loving of us than anybody else. Why are you so afraid to hand your life to Jesus who laid his life down for you? Who would lay their life down for you? Some people wish you were not around. They, some people wish that they, you were gone from planet Earth. Why should you commit your life to someone who wishes you they are not around in their life? Why are you so afraid to give your life to someone, the only one who died for you, to save you from Satan and sin? But this is a track record of God's people. It's a track record of hypocrisy that he highlighted in chapter 7. He quoted Isaiah and Jesus says, in Isaiah, the lips are turned to God. You are there at the temple, but your hearts are turned away from God. That's hypocrisy, you know. My lips and your lips are turned to God. We're singing those songs but my heart is turned away. And Jesus calls that useless worship. It's useless for yourself because it's accomplishing nothing for yourself. And it's actually offensive to God. Did you ever realize that? That hypocrisy has two directions. If it's useless for yourself, it's already bad enough. It's offensive to God. That's worse. Useless to God, that means, you know, the, the governments around the world, eh? example, example, have just lied to you all the three jabs that you got, they are just placebo. They don't work. So you took three jabs, right? That's totally useful to, useless to you. And guess what? You take this logic. It's totally useless to you when you do this hypoc hypocritical worship. Most importantly, it's offensive to God when you're two-timing with Him. Jesus wants to end that kind of half-hearted worship 
beginning with the half-hearted worship of Israel. So we waste so much time and energy trying to be in charge of your life. Every single thing that you do is trying to be in charge of your life, ruler of your own life, to gain the honour of this world. Every country has honour and shame. Every culture has honour and shame. What will be the most shameful thing in Singapore society? Very high up in shame and honour. If you don't do well academically, and some people never recover from that. But in some countries, if you don't do well academically, it's sports. So where I studied for many years in Australia, from high school onwards to university and then to Bible college, if you are a guy and you're bad in sports, my goodness, that's, that's a big put down. You can't play cricket, you can't play rugby, you can't play anything at all. Right? If you fail in sports, that's a big put down. You never recover from that. Every system has honour and shame. What's the honour and shame in Japanese culture? What's the honour and shame in Korean culture? What's the honour and shame in Roman culture? What's the honour and shame in Jewish culture? It's always climbing the ladder. It's always climbing the ladder. So you save yourself, you gain the world. You're pursuing self-identity. You're pursuing self-arrival but you lose God's image in you. So the cynical people say, we all have a price. At different times, different things of people might mean the world to you. The word Jesus uses there is cosmos, the world or worldliness. And maybe a snapshot. Herod was curious about John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist exposed his sin of stealing his brother's wife, but then when it came to the crunch, he chose Herodias. He chose not to lose face in the, at the party, in front of the crowd, when he had already said to Herodias' daughter who danced, whatever you ask for, I will give. Whatever. So beware, friends, this whole honour and Honour and shame system is very shameful to hear Hokkien Lao Kui, lose face. Every culture doesn't like to lose face. They have different measures of what it means to lose face. Right? And then the disciples' expectations, we are following, we are following, who are we following? Who do you think I am? Could be, could be, could be John the Baptist, could be Elijah, could be one of the prophets could be the Christ. The confession is right, but what kind of Christ was not right? Powerful Christ versus meek Christ. He is the meek and the suffering Christ. And in chapter 9, you know what they do? They are discussing as he marches into Jerusalem, who would be the greatest? Who would be the greatest? They think that following Jesus is about greatness. He's going to establish the glory of Israel, national Israel. And Jesus says to them, I'm not on about the glory of national Israel. I'm on about the glory of God, which you as God's people should have been on about. The glory of God. And then Israel's national freedom. At different times, different things and people might mean the world to you. Is that true? 
That's absolutely true. And so, have you read the testimonies? I may have quoted them, just in case you've forgotten them, of our newest members who have come to join us. There was the testimony of Jeff, not this Jeff, Pastor Jeff, another Jeff, Jeff Chua. And then he looks back over his life and came to realize, I made so many wrong decisions and hurt so many people around me. I couldn't take charge of my own life. It was time to put up my hands and say, I'm not in control. I actually don't want to hurt anybody around me, but because I'm so self-centered, I kept making decisions for myself. What do you think that? At one time, making his own decisions was the most important thing. Then I flipped the page, and this sister in Christ says this, During my teenage years, I turned away from God and was only following my own desires, trying to fill my life with pleasures this world can offer to a young woman. Looking back now, I think I really didn't understand what it actually means to follow Christ. She was this church coer. By God's grace, at the age of 24, I began to realize I was in a spiritually dark, dark place. Then I remember how much God was loving and merciful towards me. And after prayer, I broke up with my non-Christian boyfriend and left behind the friends I used to hang out with. You know how hard it is as a young person to leave peer pressure? You know how hard it is to drop a boyfriend who is everybody thinks around you, everybody around you say, you're so lucky, he's so cool, he's so cute. How can you drop him? He's so cool, he's so cute. If you choose a guy because he's so cool and so cute, right? Please don't forget, other women will also find him so cool and so cute. And you're going to get hands full, right? So cool and so cute. Very few around like myself. Oh, and Pastor Jeff. So cool and so cute. If you choose a beautiful woman, make sure you're confident enough to keep this beautiful woman. Because other men will also find her beautiful. And it's your heart of fidelity. And so each one, each story that unfolds here, right, tells you the tragedy of ruling your own life again and again. At different times, different people and things might mean the world to you. So God's saving call, are you half dead or half alive? Half dead and half alive. Half dead to your self-rule, half alive to Christ. Half alive to Christ, half dead to yourself. It's a terrible position to be in really terrible and so you've got to work out i spent some time this morning with our leaders of discipleship groups so what could you be half dead to are you half dead you're still very vulnerable to what people think about you to peer pressure are you still vulnerable to that it's a huge thing to pray for our young people about what others think about you are you very vulnerable are you half dead to anxiety to worry that you're wearing yourself to dis distraction and destruction? Are you half dead to that one person or one relationship that will complete your life? There is no human person that will complete your life and your happiness. I've shared this many times. You know, a very young pastor, about 30 years ago, conducted a funeral and this older man sat with me. He was already in his 70s. And he, after the after the funeral message and then the service, said me, and he leaned over and asked me, Pastor Chris, 
can get divorced or not? I look at him, Uncle, how old are you? He said, 70 plus. I said, why don't you get divorced? It's too late, right? Not too late. Lah. I've been so unhappy with my wife. I just want some happiness in the last stage. Lah. He's got a half-dead notion of give me some happiness in, in my 70s. If that doesn't die, you'll always be vulnerable. Always. And it's now a trend. Divorcing in our 60s and 70s and 80s. Give me one last shot at happiness. One last shot at arrival. Insecurity. Right? So half dead to self, half alive to Christ. Unless you experience the dying to yourself, the nothingness of yourself, you will not experience the newness of life offered by Jesus. Amen? As long as you think you hope it's not a two-key system like our CPF, you know? Government unlocks, the president unlocks. You have one key and Jesus unlocks the other key, complete happiness. No, you've got to throw away your key. It's a one-key system with the kingdom of God. There are no two-key systems. It won't open. So unless you experience the nothingness of self, you will not experience the newness of life in Christ Jesus. Amen? Oh, I'm just checking. So I don't need to be in charge of my own life. I don't need to be noted. If I'm sidelined by my friends in, in school now, in JC, in university, doesn't matter what they think. I don't need to be needed by people. I don't need to be right all the time. And I was just speaking to a relative overseas and he says, oh, yeah, his school came to global prominence. First, he came to national pro prominence. And how did he come to national prom uh, prominence? Because uh, the school decided to get the parents, sending their children there, saying, uh, parents, if you enroll your kids in our school, the gender in which your children enroll when they start here at year one and the gender which they will leave when they graduate in year six is the same gender. And the whole nation was up in arms against that school. The whole world was up in arms. We want me to repeat that in slow motion for you? That me as the school get you to sign when your child enrolls in my school. You say you're boy or girl, by the time you finish, you will also leave as a boy or girl. But that's so against transgender and transition now. Because that's the number one mood of the world. Where are we? We're completely lost, right? And so, I don't need to be complete in your personal life, whether you're marrying for the right reason. I don't need to arrive somewhere in my life. I don't need this for myself, and I don't need this from the world. I won't get this from the world. You won't get this from the world. But Satan will tempt you and say, you will get this from the world if you don't take up the cross and follow Jesus. This is what we really need from Jesus and his kingship. I need to be saved from Satan and his delusion of the world. I need Jesus to be right in my life. And I'll pay the price for Jesus to be right in my life. Though the whole world thinks I'm mad for holding on to such an identity and sexuality and humanity. I need God to be glorified, not me and you to be glorified. I need faith to arrive. I don't need to arrive somewhere and lose my faith. I need faith to arrive in complete surrender to Jesus. That is the cross.
That is what Jesus is talking about here. This is his first prediction and his first teaching about the cost of discipleship. So the sooner we die to self, the sooner we live in Christ and for Christ. And how must we live? Every day you live, you die fully to everything that cuts against Jesus' lordship over you. You die fully to self, you will live fully for Christ. Amen? So I said to the congregation, to the service at ARPC at Bishan, what does that mean for you and me from chapter 7 to chapter 8? Please do not spend too much time searching people's hearts. Spend more time searching your own heart. And how frequently should you do this, Jeff? How frequently should you do this, Jason? How frequently should you do this, Audrey? How frequently should I do this, Chris? As frequently as possible. As often as possible. Spend time allowing God and His Word and His Spirit to search your heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Don't spend time judging people all the time. It's a waste of your time and your energy. And that's vitally important. If that's our spiritual panacea, if that's our spiritual cure, right? Jesus speaking that out of a man's heart comes all kinds of evil, and unless you lay down your life and you take up the cross and you're unashamed of me, you will lose life. If you're ashamed of me, you will lose life. When he returns in all his glory, we're going to take a look at that in depth next week at the transfiguration. And so, if you ignore this, you are not on the path of spiritual salvation. If you ignore Jesus and the cross, you are on the path of spiritual suicide. If you belittle sin in any shape and form, whether it is caving into anxiety, caving into insecurity, caving into pure, pure pressure, if we belittle our sin, you will belittle your need, your desperate and eternal need for Jesus as your Saviour. Do not be ashamed of Him. And the only reason I am here preaching the gospel with all of my heart is by the grace of God to keep me unashamed of Jesus in the cross because I know I've been phenomenally, fully forgiven by Jesus for all the sins I committed before I knew Him, for all the sins and weaknesses of my life that makes me new and gives me confidence to preach this gospel to you. Let's stay with Jesus and you will not be a loser. In the eyes of the world you may be, but in the eyes of God, you are an overcomer and you are a winner. Amen? You must choose. You must choose. Let's stand and pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we would spend eternity praising you, worshipping you, exalting you for your humility, your humility in taking up the cross for us. And so to you we turn and give our lives. And we pray that by your word and your spirit, you will indeed empower us to search our hearts. For out of our hearts comes all kinds of evil. And ask the question, who can save us from Satan and from sin? Who can save us from a heart that is so stubborn in his rebellion against God? And surely it is you. 
and surely it is your perfect atonement for us. And so we turn to you and pray that you and the cross would matter more to us than anything else. May we spend time knowing you and your true identity so that we will truly know who we are in relationship with you and complete your work of bringing the glorious gospel to the ends of the earth so that the name of God will be exalted forever and ever. Through Christ our Lord, we always pray. Amen.